Open your Bibles, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter, or the second, did it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we've been in 2 Corinthians for quite some time now. Uh, we've been in this chapter for three weeks. Uh, it is an extraordinary chapter. I hope you're reading along. And if you are, I know you will have discovered that it is magnificent. You know, ever since chapter 2, just to kind of bring us up to speed, ever since chapter 2, we've been talking about servanthood. Back in chapter 2, it was established that we are His servants. We are those conquered by His love. And it's up to us to act on that fact, to act accordingly. Chapter 3, we talked about our adequacy in that. And no, we're not adequate to be servants of the eternal God, but He makes us adequate. What a tremendous promise that is. Um, you know, we're not adequate to serve in the lowest position. I don't even remember, you know those movies where the butler brings in the tea to like the queen? Have you ever thought about whether or not you could actually do that job every day without spilling? I wouldn't stand the chance. Man. I'm sure I'd lose it as often as not, right? Even a job as simple as that, when you put it in the perspective of eternity and serving the king, I'm not adequate to. But by his grace and mercy, by the equipping of his spirit, we have been made adequate. Chapter 4, we talked about the reality of earthen vessels, that perfection isn't a requirement, that we are valued as servants even though we are seriously broken. Right? So far in chapter 5, we've talked about the matter of our identity as his servants, that we don't want to be found naked, and that's not talking about clothing in the sense of our physical clothing, although that's important. Got to wear it. But the fact that in our carnal, we don't want to be known by our carnal nature. That's not how we want people to know us. So we need those garments that He provides, the redeemed character that He provides. That's how we want to be known, and that's how we will be known, because of His work in our lives, right? In Christ, we are clothed with His righteousness, right? And then we talked last week about how Christ guides us in this walk of servanthood, His love constraining us, bringing into being that new man, that new woman that we are. Well, this morning we're going to wrap chapter 5 up and I call these last few verses the crown jewel of servanthood. And if you have any question, any doubt that we're still talking about servanthood, look at the beginning of chapter 6. He's going right back into servanthood. right? But I call these last few verses um, the crown jewel of servanthood because they really show what being a servant of the king is all about. So without any delay, let's get right to our text. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now all of these things, and, and this, is not, this is about one thing. And it's not, it's not hard to guess, not hard to figure out what Paul's talking about in these few verses. Listen carefully. Now all of these things are from God who reconciled himself us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not counting their transgressions against him, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We're talking this morning about reconciliation. Used five times in just those few verses. It's a huge, huge word. I think we pretty much know what, what reconciliation is. We, we, in our marriages, we certainly try to practice it. In our family, all of our relationships, 
time always comes when we need to do some work of reconciliation. The idea that you've got two parties that, that were in agreement, but now they're not in agreement, and we have to, we have to bring these parties together. We have to restore uh, relationship. We use expressions like people reconciling their differences, right? Often um, in a relationship that's really having a bad time, a mediator will be involved to help, help find that place, right? You ever think about what the word mediator means? It means in the middle, like, you know, the, the meridian and the road. It's in the middle, right? So the mediator stands in the middle and brings those parties together. It's a, it's a really, really good good thing to have somebody when you're having a hard time that will mediate mediation's great brings people together finds common ground helps them to move forward but that's not what paul's talking about here that is not what paul is talking about here well, what i want to do this morning we talk about the word reconciliation as paul first of all define the word because it is used a little bit differently than we normally do and then see how it works in the text and then finally ask the question why is he saying it here? It's a huge question. That become a little bit more clear as we get into it. First of all, um, let's talk about, about the word, reconciliation. Um, it, again, as it means, pretty much we think it means it's a really old word. It, it's a really old word. It goes back to the, some of the earliest Greek stuff. And the reason I talk about that um, I, I'm always going to talk about the history of the word. You know, the Greek language, at the point the New Testament was written, was already older than the English language is today. You know, as long as the English-speaking world has had the English language. By the time the New Testament is being written, they had already had the Greek language longer, right? And languages, as we know, change, right? And so, you know, the fact that Homer or Plato or one of those guys used the word one way, that, that helps us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how the writers of the New Testament meant the word to be used 700 or 800 years later, right? And so it's really important when we're trying to understand some of these words, the meaning of which is kind of critical, that we take the time to figure out, okay, not what it meant then, but what did it mean then when they were writing the New Testament, right? And there's a really good help that we have in that process, and I've talked about this before, and that's called the Septuagint. Because beginning about 300 years before Christ, thanks to Alexander the Great who came around and conquered everybody, and you know, everybody figured out they should speak Greek, and then he left, right, was even the Jewish people began to speak Greek more than they spoke Hebrew. So the, so the Jews, Hebrew scholars, says we need to produce a Bible in Greek, because everybody speaks Greek, right? And so they wrote what was called the Septuagint. And what that creates for us, as we're reading Scripture, uh, is, like a, is like a really contemporary dictionary of the language. So when scholars are translating you know, the Greek text and giving us our wonderful translations, they have this very contemporary dictionary they can go to. Oh, that's how the word was being used right about the time the New Testament is being written. Very helpful for scholars. But it does something else for us. Because sometimes when we look at the way the Septuagint handles one of these words, we realize there's been a real shift in thinking, right? And that's what happens here. Kind of an extra bonus, right? This word, katalasso is the word, was going, again, goes all the way back to the earliest playwrights, right? And it comes through the language, and then it hits the Septuagint, and they don't use it. 
It's used one time in all the Old Testament, and that in this, it's in Jeremiah, it's used a totally different way, has really no bearing on this discussion. The Jews had no use for this word. As they're translating the Old Testament, they have no use for this word, which is really weird because reconciliation is talked about in the Old Testament. Reconciliation between people, reconciliation between... The word's there, but they never use this word. And the reason is one very distinct characteristic of this particular word. When we talk about reconciliation, in our mind, as I said, we've got two parties, they've been in a relationship, they've been in agreement, now they're in disagreement, and they come together in the middle. That's what the mediator does, brings them together in the middle. This particular word doesn't work that way. This particular word, this particular kind of reconciliation always describes a situation where two parties were in relationship, they are now separated, and one party goes all the way over to the other party. One party does all the work of reconciliation. Now you can see why it didn't apply in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when they used the word, they are always talking about people, reconciling their differences. They weren't talking about God. And when you talk about the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament, we don't see this God coming all the way to his people and his people doing nothing. You found a very different relationship. You found a people called out of Egypt by God's miraculous power, and then God gave them the law, the covenant by which they would maintain that relationship. And when they goofed up, when they messed up, when they sinned, the work of reconciliation fell to them. They had to bring sacrifice. See, the sacrifice was there, and it wasn't equal. By no means was it an equal relationship, but it was nonetheless a relationship where God had done his part, and they had to, had to do their part. That's what the sacrificial law was there for. But this word, strictly a New Testament concept, where God comes all the way from one side over to the other. God says, I will do all the work of reconciling humanity to myself. Now let's put this in the, in the, in the context of this text just, to, just as we move forward here. Verse 18, now all of these things, all that he's talked about before, all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, or some translations, the word of reconciliation. God did everything. We did nothing. He did everything through Christ. In the incarnation, he crossed the divide. In the crucifixion, he paid the price by his death. And ours with him, as Roman teaches. In the resurrection, he gave us new life. It's all him. The outpouring of his spirit. Communion at a personal level. God did all of it. All we contributed was the schism. All we contributed was the breakdown. He did everything else. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God actively involved in the work of reconciliation, not counting our sins against us. Not in the, and we talked about this word reconciling, counting, Remember the checkbook thing, the illustration we talked about? you got to go through and make sure every line is correct, right? When you're balancing your checkbook, you know? It's not as though God took the record of our sins 
and just said, that's taken care of and closed it. That's not reconciliation. It's going line by line. Every sin I have ever committed or will ever commit next to it, he writes, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. Turn the page, paid in full, paid all the way down. Line by line, the deliberate choice to not count our sins against us, right? And then committing to us the word of reconciliation. But the work, but the word. We're not mediators. There's no meeting in the middle. We're just messengers. God's already crossed the divide. And that's not a separate act from the work of reconciliation. God's act of committing to us the message of reconciliation is done as part of that reconciliation. He just didn't cross the gap, pay the debt, and then say, good luck with that. No, he involves us in the task of bringing that message because even though he's crossed the divide, he's gone all the way, it still has to be accepted. And that's verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal to us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's our part. Not the work of reconciliation, that's already done. There's nothing to add to it. But to first of all, respond ourselves, accept what's offered, and then carry that message. And not just as messengers, but as ambassadors. And there's a difference. Messenger delivers the message, walks away. Ambassador's a little more invested because he's actually there as a personal representative making the appeal directly from God. And an appeal is necessary. Because even with the work of reconciliation finished perfectly, it still must be accepted. Until then, it's just an offer, right? So Paul says, we are ambassadors making an appeal, God appealing through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In verse 21, here's why, here's what's at stake. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The marvelous thing about that 21st verse talking about being. It's talking about being, not action as much as being. It made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. When Christ hung on the cross, he became sin. But did he ever sin? How did Christ become sin if he never sinned? Because God made him to be sin. God made his character the very character of disobedience to his Father. And that could only be done by the Father because Jesus never sinned. There was no other way for him to get to that place that he had to be on the cross to suffer on our behalf if the Father did not make him sin. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our righteous, just as Jesus never sinned, but became sin because of an act of the Father, even though we still struggle so, even though we at our very best are far from the righteousness of God, we nonetheless are his righteousness. How did I get to be the righteousness of God? God made me this way. Doesn't look like it. Maybe sometimes a little hint squeaks through. Doesn't matter. I can still say, I am the righteousness of God because God has made me that way. He has made me to be 
his righteousness. And in this verse, we have both the means of reconciliation and the effects of it. The means, his death. The result, my righteousness. Christ became sin so that we could become righteousness. That's the beauty of being a servant. We're still talking about servanthood here. That's the beauty of being servants. We're not just servants, we're servants of righteousness who by our service express the righteous character that he has created in us. Now that leads to a question. Verse 20. We already talked about it once. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why is Paul saying this to the Corinthian church? I mean, everything about this sounds like he's talking to unbelievers, right? You unbelievers, you need to be reconciled to God because you're out of relationship with God. God has done all the work of reconciliation. You need to accept it. Makes perfect sense if Paul's talking to unbelievers. But he's not. He's talking to a church. And admittedly, a messed up church. Corinthian church was messed up, right? It's also a church that survived 2,000 years because it's still there. Can't be that messed up, right? There's nothing here to indicate Paul thinks the Corinthian church are all unsaved. Or that there's even an especially large group in the Corinthian church that, by the way, need this message because you guys are unsaved. There's nothing to suggest in the body of the letter he's talking to unsaved people. So Paul's talking to saved people when he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, this is what I would suggest, is that the Corinthian church as a whole has, yes, experienced salvation as terms of conformity to what is required. What do I have to do to get saved? You have to, do, you have to confess Christ with all your heart. Confess Him with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Jesus, God raised Him from the dead. You shall be saved. They've done that. They've entered into this salvation experience, right? but without entering into the personal relationship that's the whole reason for our salvation in the first place. And I'm not talking about some second work of grace or moving on to perfect. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm simply talking about bringing our salvation to the place that God intended it in the first place. Consider just a couple of passages of Scripture. Luke 12, 4, Jesus said this, I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Jesus just talked to people and called them friends. That's why this word never appears in the Old Testament. I, maybe I missed it, but I can't think of any place in the Old Testament with a couple of individual exceptions, total outliers like Abraham, who was called the friend of God. I, can't, I don't see God talking about the people of Israel being his friends. Right? John 15, 13, 14 and 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And consider this from the pen of James, kind of the other side of the equation. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whose friend are we? That's the question. Whose friend are we? Yeah, I'm saved, but am I God's friend? That's a completely different question. 
The Jewish, again, this is why we don't see this concept in the Old Testament, why it never showed up in the Septuagint. The Jews were, yes, they were declared to be the people of God, but never regarded as friends of God. And that's why God remained distant. And I can illustrate that in one passage of Scripture. It illustrates it perfectly. Uh, Exodus 20, Moses has just come down from the mountain, right? He's got the Ten Commandments, right? Now, what's, what's the view of God the people of Israel have at that point? They were slaves in Egypt. God shows up, wipes out the most powerful army on the planet. There was not an army on the planet that could compare to Egypt's. And God, boom, they're gone, right? Put yourself in the place of the Jewish people. What's your first thought? I hope he doesn't do that to us, because he can. The last thing we want to do is anything that upsets this guy. I don't, whatever I do, I don't want to get him mad at us, because he can do the same thing to us. So when Moses brings the Ten Commandments down, and they are all clear, distinct directives of what you shall do and what you shall not do. What are you thinking? I'm not going to do the do nots because that's going to get him mad at me. I'm going to do the do's because if I don't, he's going to get... It's all about conforming to a set of instructions that will keep him from killing me. It's all about conformity, right? Verse 18, Moses just come down, given the people the Ten Commandments. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. All of that fits the image of the God that just wiped out Egypt. So we know Him to be, right? And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But let not God speak to us or we'll die. They wanted to keep him at a distance. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that you may fear the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Moses, you go up there, you hang out with God, so that if you make a mistake, you get toasted, not us. That's the equation, right? We need to remember what their understanding was. They were looking at being his people, and that is scary. And so because of the reality of who they were dealing with, which they had just seen so graphically in terms of Egypt, what are they looking for? Looking for conformity to his word, but not necessarily relationship. They're looking for appeasement, but not necessarily fellowship. They're looking for obedience, but not necessarily community. And then you add to the Ten Commandments all the sacrificial law, which are all about what? Keeping him, and from their perspective, keeping him happy, keeping God appeased, keeping God from destroying them. It's not about establishing relationship. Now that was fine then, but that's not fine now. And the question each of us have to ask ourselves is, what defines my relationship with God? Am I just acting out of conformity? He's given me a list of things I need to do in order to be saved. I'm going to conform to that list. Am I acting about appeasement? When I sin, I'm going to be really quick to ask him to forgive me because I don't want him mad at me. When he tells me what to do, am I simply going to obey because I want him to like me rather than enter into a relationship 
with him. That's the issue. Am I prepared to enter into a real relationship with him? Frankly, that's scary. That is scary. Because the people I have the, cl the closest relationships with know me the best. And they know what a piece of work I am. If you don't have any questions, just ask her. She'll tell you. Right? Right? She also has expectations of me that other people don't have. Ooh. You mean the closer I get to God, the greater the likelihood he will ask things of me that he might not ask of people that aren't as close to him? That's scary. There may even be things in my life that he doesn't want. How do you react when one of your really good friends does something that you want nothing to do with? You go, oh, man. Tell you what, man, if you and I want to continue in friendship, you have to stop doing that. Ouch! You see, when we talk about stepping into a relationship, there's a scary side of it. There's a price to be paid, but there's also an incredible reward. Jesus said, I call you friends. Let the thought of that possibility just resonate in your ear for a minute. The Son of God, who gave his life for us, saying to you, saying to me, I call you my friend. There's an old saying, pick your friends wisely. It's also important that we act with wisdom with regard to our friends. Father, I, I, I believe that, you know, we look at the Corinthian letters and we go, man, these people had all kinds of problems and they were so messed up and Paul had to spend so much time. Father, I suspect that a lot of that had to do with living a life that consisted of conformity, Lord, a life of appeasement, Father, a life of obedience rather than a life of an intimate relationship. Father, I believe that is your desire for each one of us, Lord. Father, you want us to, and to enter into the kind of relationship that Abraham had, that it could be said of him. Against all odds, Father, he was a friend of God, Lord. As Pastor Joyce has been reading over these last several weeks, the incredible intimate relationship that David had, so that even in the worst of circumstances, he could nonetheless lift up his head and be encouraged, Lord, knowing that his God was on his side and would not fail him. Father, as we face the challenges that are so much a part of the everyday, Lord, our prayer this morning is that um, we would step beyond simple conformity, Lord, and step into, into that relationship with you where we allow you, Lord, we allow you, Lord, to get that close to us that you call us friends. Father, that's, that's going to be a challenge, Lord. But um, we know that you're, that you're as interested in it as we are. You're even more interested in it than we are. Father, I think of that moment when, when you were walking in the garden and, and Adam was hiding from you. Eve was hiding from you. I think of the question you asked them, Lord. You didn't ask them who they were. You asked them where they were. You were longing for them. Father, I believe 
every bit as much you long for us. Father, just give us the wisdom to open our hearts and minds to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.